think some of you are aware of my love for New York City. I started going about two decades ago with some students and now try to find whatever excuse I can to make it up to the city. One of the reasons why I love to go, though, is because of just the architecture. There's something about walking through the canyons of skyscrapers that kind of gives you this vertical vertigo as you walk through it. But I seem to always find myself wandering over to a certain part of town so that I can see a particular building called the Flatiron Building. Right there across the street from Madison Park around 5th and Broadway on the south side, uh, there's this building that was constructed in about 120 years ago that's 22 stories, but it's in the shape of a very thin, almost sharp-looking triangle. It's an amazing piece of edifice there. And if you look at it, it kind of plays tricks on your eyes. You, you get to one side of it, it looks like it's just a single flat walled building standing up in the middle of the, of the city. And I can only imagine how dramatic it must have been in 1902 when they finally put that building up for the first time of how much it must have looked to those, that, those first eyes. It actually was the first skyscraper north of 14th Street and must have just looked like a razor cutting the sky to those first people that viewed it. I also wish I could have been there when they laid the cornerstone. Because the cornerstone for a building like that has to be just as meticulous and perfect as the building itself. In other words, the building has to sort of match what is there in that sort of cornerstone. But who watched that day could have imagined the architectural beauty that would come out of that cornerstone? Well, this morning I want to look in, as we come to this dedication Sunday at exactly what Peter unpacks when he's saying these remarkable things about the church of God and about God's people, and he compares it to a cornerstone. I want to make a couple observations about that this morning through two ways. Number one, I want to look at the nature of the cornerstone, but then secondly, the meaning of the cornerstone. Peter opens up with this image. He says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. As you're studying Peter, you're going to find him a little infuriating sometimes because he can be very cryptic. What does he mean by this idea of a cornerstone? Well, I would submit to you this morning that, that in the ancient Near Eastern uh, culture, they understood what a cornerstone was for uh, because it was the first stone that was laid in any construction project. Uh, it was always uh, a stone that contained the actual dimensions of the house, and it had to be perfectly cut because whatever the cornerstone was, the rest of the house was going to become. It had to be the strongest stone, uh, the most perfectly crafted stone, uh, there's some evidence to show that the time spent by the Masons working on the cornerstone was almost as much as it took to build the entire edifice. And so a first century reader had this in the background when Peter says, but come to him, come to Jesus, that living capstone, that cornerstone. In other words, he's saying all of the other stones in a building, they, they come to the cornerstone. Well, what does it mean to have Jesus as your cornerstone? I heard one minister one time put it this way. He said, to have Jesus as your cornerstone means that you have to shift your center of gravity over to him. I wonder how many of you remember being subjected to the cruelty uh, that is camp, uh, um, camp leadership and team building exercises known as the trust fall. You remember this? You're told to get around a group of people, obviously, oftentimes strangers. You put your arms over your chest and you're told to fall back into them and hope that they catch you. 
It's a strange thing because the reason why you're balanced when you're standing up is because your, your center of gravity is over your, over your body, over your feet. But in order for me to tip over, I've got to throw that center of gravity to someone else. But in that moment, I'm extremely vulnerable, aren't I? Because if the person doesn't catch me, I'm going to come in solid contact with the floor. And it won't be, it won't be happy. But this, this minister was saying, this is a great illustration of what it means to believe in Jesus. Because it means that we shift our center of gravity to him. I realize that as Southern Christians, it's very easy to say, well, of course I believe in Jesus. But I think the text is getting us to ask a more profound question, which is this. What is your functional center of gravity? Remember, your cornerstone is whatever it is that's sort of setting the direction of your life. And so if I find myself to be worried, if I find myself to be frantic, if I find myself to be scurrying around frenetically, does that not suggest that I've lost faith in whatever my functional center of gravity is? Why? Because those allegiances, they can't hold my support. And I get to be fragile and disordered whenever they fail me. But don't you see, Jesus coming to Jesus is so much more than just a change of mind. It's more than the adoption of a new belief system. It's even more than just a moral, personal resolution that you might make. Coming to Jesus means shifting the weight of your life onto him. And change, of course, inevitably comes from that. My wife and I will bear witness to the phrase that I heard many years ago that as a parent, you're only ever as happy as your most miserable child? What do we say when we say that? We say, what happens is, is my center of gravity can so easily shift to my child's happiness. When they fail, I feel like a failure. When someone judges them, I feel judged. It's an interesting way to unlock some of the conflict in our own homes, isn't it? I, I can confess to you that, that I've been referred to as a workaholic before, and I'll tell you why. Because the relative health of this church occupies all of my free thoughts. <laughs> when, when someone here gets sick, I feel sick. When all of a sudden the church fails in some way, I feel like a failure. Why does this happen? It happens because when your cornerstone fails, you fail. You feel like a failure, you're out of control. And so the nature of a cornerstone is to literally set the direction of our lives. And Peter is offering up Jesus to us as the only true cornerstone. Which brings me to my second point which is the meaning of the cornerstone. And I want you to see that what, Paul, what Peter is doing here is he's using this metaphor for how God talks about his people in the way that the Bible often does through something called a double entendre. Have you ever heard of a double entendre? It's, a, it's actually a figure of speech where you say something and there's sort of a plain, obvious meaning to the phrase, but then there's kind of an underlying meaning. Uh, there's a far more profound, sort of subtle, abstract meaning behind what you're saying. And so oftentimes you'll find God using construction metaphors as double entendres when he's talking to his people. Since we're dedicating a building, I thought 1 Chronicles 17 would be a great place to start. Because there's King David having this conversation with God through the prophet Nathan about a construction project that he wants to start. David wants to complete this because he realizes that even though he's the king, it feels incongruent for him to be living in this palace while Yahweh dwells in this shabby tent. Yeah, that tent, the tabernacle that Moses had built so many years before. Imagine how run down that thing had become. 
And so David starts talking about building a new temple. He wants for Yahweh to have a house that's at least as great as the house that he lives in. He talks about it as a place where Yahweh's name could dwell. Stay tuned. Next week we're going to talk a whole lot more about God's name when we get to the third commandment. But, but, but King David is coming and is commended for his plans by God. But then all of a sudden, God begins to sort of unpack some double entendre. <laughs> and it's mind-blowing. Because he looks at this first. Hey, David, you want to build a house for me? Okay, great. But you know what? I'm going to build you a house. There will never be a time when one of your sons does not sit on the throne of Israel. Hey, David, you want to make my name great? Great. But you know what? I'm actually going to make your name great. No one will, no one will ever forget the name of King David. It's going to ring throughout the halls of history forever. And he says, hey, you want to build me a temple? <laughs> you know, David, in a million years, I can never explain to you just exactly what I'm going to do with this temple. I mean, really think about it. Is there any way for David to sort of imagine that the ancestor that was going to sit on the throne of Israel forever would be God himself incarnate in Jesus, the true and better David. Could David have imagined that what God was going to do one day was this movement of a multicultural, multinational, multiracial people of God that would be led by a guy named the Apostle Paul, who at his conversion was told that he was to go and carry the name to the Gentiles. Could David have imagined that there would be a poor Jewish carpenter that would stand up in front of the religious Jewish leaders of his day and say to them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days? What was Jesus talking about? Jesus was equating his body with the temple. I mean, if you really plow through it, it's mind-bending double entendre. But what does it mean? I think it means this. And it's my one thing I want to give to you this morning before we finish. I think it means that God is in the habit in scripture of taking the things that we offer to him, the things that we do for him, and he takes them and he does with, does with it so much more than we could ever imagine. This is his custom. Oftentimes, what we offer to him takes us in directions that we would never have understood <laughs> and most of the time never would have attempted had he told us about it ahead of time. This is all throughout the Bible. Think about places like Isaiah 64, verse 4, where God says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. What's he saying? No one would believe this if they were told. I think this is what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. See what he's saying? We make our plans and God takes them and does things that we can never imagine. Mark 9, 41, Jesus says, If you even give a cup of water to one of my disciples, you will by no means lose your reward. Do you hear this? God is in the business of taking our micro and making it macro. We have no idea what God is going to be up to using this little thing that we've offered to him. But that's the way he works. It's likely that nobody in the world will see the conviction that you came under when we sang that song about God's holiness. But you know what? It humbled you. It softened you. It made you that much more different. 
Nobody in the world is going to see that you went to parchment with our Kairos ministry and spent some time with that prisoner. But he was just a little bit encouraged in that moment that one day wasn't quite as bad as it was before. Nobody's going to stand and applaud for you that you carved out of your schedule time to go to one of our connect groups. (laughs) But when you went, there was somebody there who met you for the umpteenth time with a smile because they were glad to see you. And it gave you a sense of confidence to push a little further. No one's going to see that check that you wrote to our benevolence ministry to give aid to our community. And maybe pay something simple like a light bill for someone in our community. But here's the deal. God sees it. And he takes those little things and he blows them up. Because let's be honest, this building, this building is going to wear out. We're going to punch holes in the walls. Courtney, I'm so sorry, but we're going to dirty up those couches that are out there. We're going to scuff up the, 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 the landings. The parking lot in the summer heat is going to sort of buckle. Paint's going to peel. I'm sure there's something terrible happening with the HVAC system, even as we speak right now. But as we dedicate this building, we have to rest in the knowledge that God is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. Even when all of these walls fade away, There's a chief cornerstone, and this is the stone that the builders rejected. It's chosen, and it's precious. It's a stone of stumbling. It's a rock of offense. You want to know why? Because God is building another building. It's being constructed right now, except it's happening in the heavenly places. And you know, that building is made up of what the Bible will call living stones, Stones that have aligned themselves with the cornerstone who have thrown their center of gravity onto him and are being renewed into his likeness every day. I think this is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14 when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's exactly what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm sure the disciples were tempted to say something stupid as they were wont to do. Like, oh, a house. Could I have the room like furthest away from the kitchen? And Jesus regularly was like, no. When I'm away, it means that I'm going to send my spirit to go and draw untold numbers of people into my kingdom. And they're, they're going to build it up. They're going to build up this house year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia. You see, God's architecture is biological. <laughs> His house grows as new stones are added, but even as the old stones are sort of perfected, the living stones, Paul says, a holy temple to the Lord. So if there's anything that we should be dedicating this building to, it's really just that. That it would facilitate the building that Jesus is building right now in the heavenly places. That's what we have to dedicate this building to and for. How do we do that? I think honestly it makes for a wonderful invitation. (laughs) That we would, on the invitation of Peter this morning, obey that text and come to him. And by coming to him and believing in him, we mean that we become living stones ourselves. That we cast all of our weight on him. That we shift our center of gravity to him. To believe in him. And to never die. 
Could there be a better mission for this church? May God make it so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then grant us, Father, to see with new eyes. Because for so often, Lord, we don't see what is really going on. We don't see how your kingdom, the, the little things, we think it's such a minor thing that we wrestle through questions of our own holiness. We think that that donation meant nothing. We think that that little prayer was just a sound echoing in our heads, but it's not. That's not your way. You take little things, and Father, in the grand scheme of the craziness that goes on in the world around us, the opening of a building on the east side of Oxford, Mississippi is nothing, but not to you. And we are those, Father, who believe that we were you to tell us then, now, what you'll do then, we wouldn't believe you. And so, Father, come and work in us. Give us grace to do so, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.